technology and our understanding of the world negated a, a need for a God. Fast forward 80 years until April 8th, 1966, when Time Magazine indicated a similar thought. Their argument that modern secular culture and thought had lost a sense of the sacred, not needing a God to answer uh, superstitions or the needs uh, of our un understanding. Contemporary minds thinking God is in fact dead. This transformed post-modern, and now I would say we live in a post-Christian society, as, as the numbers kind of indicate. Barna Research Group of, of Faith Matters uh, has, has done a study indicating that the number of people that still say they believe in God is high, especially as the ages are older, between 60 and 80 and plus, uh, still 92% say they believe in God. Although, when asked if you believe that there is a God uh, without any uncertainty, that number drops to about 70%. Then you go down to about 45-year-olds, which is right in the middle of a generation called Generation X, which I was born and raised in. And the numbers drop even further when you look at the uncertainty that there is, in fact, a God, and they're in the mid-60s. Then for those in their 30s and, and late 20s, that number actually drops to hovering right around 50%. So our world really in the last couple of decades has really very much changed. And yet some of these sentiments go back to the 1880s when he made these words, God's not or God is dead, somewhat infamous. And, and yet we see, or at least I see, God at work in many different ways. A gentleman named Daniel Bashta tells us a story about his adoption journey, he and his family, his wife, trying to adopt and all the struggles that had gone with that. And it was time and time that things fell through, and finally, through prayer and through asking God to intervene, they were sitting in the hospital room with the birth mother. And Daniel's sisters came into the room, and they had a stuffed lion with them, and they saw her smirk, and Daniel explained, lions have deep meaning within our family. And she said, that's interesting because not but a couple weeks ago, I was at a concert. And, and at this concert, there was this guy named Chris Tomlin. And he sang this song called Like a Lion. And as he sang that song, I was listening to the lyrics, some of which read, let love explode and bring the dead to life. A love so bold to bring a revolution somehow. I'm lost in your freedom, and in this world I'll overcome. And the, the chorus, my God's not dead. He's surely alive, living on the inside, roaring like a lion. She said those words cut deep, and, and I had this feeling of a presence that I've never had before. And I couldn't shake that feeling as I went home. I started journaling about the meaning of those words to me, about this presence that was new to me. And I see changed my mind because I had an abortion scheduled for just a couple of days later. But God at work in my life through this song made me seek out options for adoption. And now they were together. God's dead? 
Not so sure. See, God continually, as I look at people's lives and hear people's stories, I see him fitting the pieces of our lives together in such a way that they only make sense with God in the context of those stories. And I wonder if the same isn't true back in the book of Ephesians thousands of years ago. Let's jump back there to Ephesians chapter 2. And earlier in this chapter, uh, Paul uh, starts by writing uh, about some of the, the darkness that was in their lives. And really, he was speaking a lot to the Jewish community, saying that we were, we were sons of destruction, objects of wrath. But then the good that would come out of that now in the second part of chapter 2, he's speaking more to the Gentiles, those that were outside of the Israelite community. And this is what he says, starting in verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So he's wanting to remind them of where they've been. You have to understand your history and where you've been so that you can have a better context of where you currently are. And he says, I want to take you Gentiles back there one more time. Not just you as an individual, but as your people back generations and generations. He says, you were lacking in a number of areas. The first of which is this. You were separated from Christ. Now, each of them individually had been separated from Christ at one point in time as a Messiah, but as a people, as a Gentiles, as a whole, they were separated from the entire concept of a Messiah because the Messiah was promised to come to the Israelites, to those people, a promise that would be fulfilled, but not necessarily to the Gentiles. And so they lived outside of that promise. The second thing is this, it says you were not a part of the commonwealth uh, of the chosen people. They were always seen as outsiders. Now, this isn't God's intention to say, hey, this group right here is my favorite. And all y'all are like, whatever. See, the Israelites were God's chosen people. And they were blessed in order to be a blessing to the rest of the world. That was always God's intent that I am going to interact directly with you so that you can be my ambassadors to the rest of the world and share my blessing with others. But the Gentiles were not the chosen people, and so they were lacking in that way. The third, he says you had no access to the promises that God had made, the covenants that God made with his people, the Israelites. In the past, those covenants included the promised land, a place that would be overflowing with milk and honey, that God would protect them and walk with them and defeat their enemies as they stayed true to him. They were outside of those promises. And also, again, the, the promise of the Messiah, fourth, says you are hopeless. You are hopeless because God wasn't at work in your life on a day-to-day -day basis. You were hopeless because you didn't really have hope for a future in eternity. And then last, the fifth thing he says, you were without God. He says, I need you to remember that for just a second. You have to understand where you were so that you can have a context of where you currently are. You have to understand who you used to be as a people so that you can better understand your current identity. And he moves on in verse 13 and he says... But now, but now in Christ Jesus, you see, something has changed. But now it's different. 
Back in verse 5 of the same chapter, Mike showed us last week, he says this, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. He says, but now, something different has changed. He says, but now you have been bought back. Your sin separated you from God. There was a price to be paid, and God paid that price. You have been redeemed, and you have been bought back by the sacrifice, even while you were still in your sin. Even while, before you got your act together, even while you were in it, God brought you back by giving his son. So who you were no longer identifies who you are because now we are in Christ. He continues, verse 13. But now in Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Once you were far off, but now you have been brought near. Not only were you purchased and bought, but you were brought near. This is not something that the Israelites or that the Gentiles could have done on their own to regain a relationship with God. It was done for them on the cross. And no longer are they strangers, but they have been brought near because they have been adopted. That's the language from chapter 1. He's saying, let me remind you, you were adopted. You're co-heirs. You're heirs with Christ. You have been brought near and now are insiders. Then in verse 14 says this, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two and so making peace. And that he might right, reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby there by killing the hostility. And so he again says that he has broken down this wall that once divided us. It could have been a metaphorical wall, things that from their past, the Israelites who, who didn't always see themselves as blessed in order to be a blessing to others, they just liked to be God's chosen people. And they took advantage of people around them and they took advantage of God and didn't act as though God wanted them to. And so there was this wall because the Israelites would tell the Gentiles, you are not God's chosen people. And the Gentiles always felt like outsiders. But it could have been something physical also. In the temple courts, there was different courts for different groups of people. And there was the, the court of the Jews and there was a court of the Gentiles. And separating it was a four and a half foot wall. And Josephus, who was a historian at that time, said that there was an inscription written on the top of that wall that read like this. No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. You got it? Like even in the place of worship. Let it be known that the God's chosen people, the, 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 the Israelites are insiders and the Gentiles are outsiders. There is a wall, but it says here in Ephesians, God has broken down this wall. He has removed the separation that man has put in place. You see, it was never God's plan to say, hey, build this wall and put this inscription that you'll kill all outsiders who hop over. That's not God's plan. That was man's plan. And he says, I've, I've stripped all that away. 
And so we have this hostility. Now, the Gentiles and the Israelites, they were not at war with one another. And yet, just because we're not at war doesn't mean that we don't have hostility towards one another. And Jesus is saying through Paul, I've done away with that. He says this, in fact, he says, I have taken two men and made one new man, united together in one. There's a guy named John Christenstum. He said this. He said, suppose there be two statues, the one of silver and the other made of lead, and then that he hath melted them down, what shall come out? Gold? Saying you can't take a silver statue and a lead statue and melt them together and end up with gold. That makes no sense. It's ludicrous. And yet that's exactly what God is doing. Melting two different kinds of people, two different uh, uh, genealogies of people and making them one. It's similar language that we see in 2 Corinthians where it says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. It doesn't say that you're a new and improved version of yourself, that you're better than you used to be. It says that you are a new creation. God has taken the old and made something new when you are in Christ. And he's just nailing this point away over and over. I need you to understand who you are. Verse 17. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off. And peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. He says he came to those that were close, the Israelites. He also came and preached peace to those who were far off, the Gentiles. And he has brought us all together as one. That we can have access to the same spirit, to same God and Father. Verse 19. Then... So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God. Now he's back to identity. And he's again nailing it over and over. You define yourself too much by your past. You think too much of your shortcomings, about your failures, about the places that you haven't lived up to what you think are God's expectations. But he's saying that's not who God sees when he looks at you. When you are in Christ and God sees you, he sees his son. He sees the perfect sacrifice. And you know who you are? You're you're members of God's household. You're citizens of eternity, citizens of heaven. And and maybe we can agree with those. I, I like to get in line with that. But he says this, you're saints. How many of us are reluctant to take on the name of a saint? You know, we go back. No, but you don't know what I've done. Aaron, you don't know the things that I've done, the way I've treated people, the mistakes that I've made. I'm no saint. And Mother Teresa, that's a saint. There's lots of saints, but I'm not one of them. Boy, I hit the thing. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and saints. But Aaron, you don't know the way that I've treated people. You don't know that the stories that I could tell you in the dark places I've been. And yet this scripture over and over says, I know what you think of yourself, but God doesn't think that of you. Quit placing this guilt upon yourself that God never asked you to carry and see yourself the way that God sees you. You are a saint. This is who you are, is your identity in Christ. And Paul, throughout this letter, is wanting to just impress this upon them. 
And then he goes on to say this, and because you're members of this household, verse 20, you have been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined, fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. He says, you are built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. I love going and reading out of Hebrews chapter 11, where it talks about the people that have gone before Abraham by faith did this. And he goes and he tells story after story. And near the end of chapter 11, he says, and I don't have time to tell you about this guy and that lady and this other dude. I don't have time to do all that. But then he closes with this. He says, and their stories of faith are incomplete without yours. You ever catch that? We think about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the apostles, the prophets. Those guys, those are the bigwigs in the Christian faith and, and in the Israelites' faith, he says. But their stories are incomplete without your story. You see, we're being fitted together into a holy temple, into a structure. And Jesus himself is the cornerstone. In Isaiah says this, says, therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. He says that I have placed a cornerstone. And, and this time, when you place the cornerstone, the cornerstone had to be exactly perfect and aligned just right to the place that the structure, the entire structure would be built because if it was off, the entire building was going to be off. And he says that I have laid a cornerstone, a tested stone, a pure stone that everything, once it is aligned to it, will be straight and plumb and true. And this is so that we can have a strong structure. And he says, and you're the same. You guys are all the same. You see this? Jesus is the cornerstone. And when your lives are oriented just right with his, your lives will be just. And they will be straight. And they will be true. If you get off, if you're off base from that cornerstone, your lives won't line up the way they're supposed to. But he says, but I am fitting them together. On the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Jesus as a cornerstone. And this thought of fitting is about a precise measurements and putting things exactly in place. I've seen, I, I watch a lot of History Channel. I've seen a show uh, uh, about these stones in a place in Peru called Puma Punku. And, and they're these H, capital H, shaped stones. And when they're put side by side and then stacked on one another, the, the bottom part of one H will fit precisely into the top part of the other H. And there are hundreds of them. And no matter how you take them apart and reassemble them together, they fit exactly, precisely true to the point that you can't stick a razor blade between them. Now, the same precision was used in, in places that they were, uh, would have understood in the pyramids. There in Ephesus in uh, uh, the temple to Aphrodite where stones were cut in such a way that you couldn't slip a piece of paper in between them fitted just right. And this language of him fitting us and building us together, you see, we often think about Jesus as a carpenter. 
carpenter. He built furniture, or maybe he built houses. And, and carpenter, even in our own language, kind of takes on a different meanings when you think about it. Some carpenters are, are framers, some carpenters are cabinet makers, some carpenters are finishers, and so there's a lot of different things that may fit under that broad term carpenter. And yet the term that's used in the New Testament and Old Testament for this is tecton, which actually means an artisan or a craftsman, which does talk about carpentry. It also talks uh, about uh, stone masons and smiths and woodworkers. And then we have to use what I, I remember from Brooklyn's second grade year in elementary school, our context clues. Right? You remember your context clues? Look at all the things that are around you in the sentence structure to figure out what this word means. And so our context clues in this time are Jerusalem and Nazareth. And you know what there was not a lot of in that time, in that place, or still to this time? There's not a lot of trees there. I mean, think about the pictures that you remember of the Holy Land. In fact, a lot of the trees and lumber that is used in the building of great structures was floated down. There are cedars of Lebanon that were used. You know what there is a lot of? Rock and stone and quarries. Think about ancient Jerusalem and the structures that uh, still exist to today. So now think about this language that Jesus uses here through Paul. And he says, and Jesus is fitting you together like a master stonemason. And he's chipping away the stuff that is useless to the body, that is useless to the given structure, and he's lining you up on the foundation of the things that we learn from here, the apostles and the prophets. And when your life is lined up with me, I'm going to fit you just perfectly where I want you. And then think about where you're at today. We're all sitting here or standing. Florence Christian Church and Daylight Savings, you know, has ended. We're all here together. And God is fitting us together exactly how he wants us. But we're not just the church. We're not the only church. We also fit in a larger structure of the church in Florence. There are a lot of congregations meeting this morning that love Jesus and are putting him at the center of their lives. And yet across our nation and our world, how many more? And God is fitting us together, but he's placed you here today to be a part of that. Verse 22, he goes on and he says this, in him... You are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This dwelling place for God in this temple language would have made a lot of sense to them as they had had the tabernacle when they were in the wilderness wandering for 40 years. And, and God's presence would rest in a place and they would set up this tent and God's presence would come into the tent for a time. And Moses, it says, would go in and interact with God as a man does with a friend. And then God's presence would rise up out of the tabernacle and would go on the move and the Israelites would pack up and go with them until God's presence settled in a different place and they would set up camp and God's presence was in the tabernacle. And then as they entered the promised land, the, the promises of the covenant, they built a temple and God's presence would reside in that place. And he says, but now... That was all Old Testament stuff. That was all promises for the Israelites. But now we've been made one. And the new promise, the new covenant is that God's spirit will dwell in you. In you individually, but in you collectively also. And he is building us together into a temple of which the Holy Spirit will reside. You see, the temple was always the place that God should be seen and experienced. 
And now that's us. As we gather here, as we go out into Florence, as we go out into our workplaces, we are the temple of God. And the temple of God is the place that God's presence should be seen and that God should be experienced. And you may think, but you don't know my stuff. I'm not a good enough stone. See, I've got nicks and, I, and, and I've, got, I've, got, I've got shortcomings. And, I, and I've got this part of my life that's carved out and, and he can't make up for that. And, and God's like, no, it's fine. Because you know what? Where you're lacking, I'm putting somebody else to fit perfectly in where you end. And they begin, he's fitting us together. God has amazing things that he wants to do in your life in your home, in your workplace, and even more that he wants to do through the church at Florence Christian, through the church in Florence, as we continue to align our lives, he is fitting us together. Daniel Vashta, telling this story, hearing from the birth mother about the song that made such an impact in her life, how she was going to get an abortion, but instead decided to give this child up for adoption. And she had been reminded of it by this stuffed animal of a lion that Daniel's sister had brought in. And as Daniel was explaining, you know, that lions meant so much to her, she told him what had happened at this Chris Tomlin concert. He says this, I wrote that song years ago. I wrote those words. And then God fit it together that Chris Tomlin on this night would sing that song. And this birth mother would come and hear it in just the right timing, fitting these pieces together to change her mind from abortion to adoption so that this child could go and live in the Bashta home. And he says this, he says, these prophetic words were being sung over my child before I even knew who he was. God's dead? Yeah, I don't think so. See, he's at work in your life. He's fitting us together. And it's no mistake that you're here this morning. It's no mistake that you're here for a season. And it's no mistake the things that you've gone through in your past because God has fitted those together to be perfect for the presence of his spirit. And he doesn't make a lot of mistakes. And so what is it? I'm not exactly sure what God has planned for us next, but he's building us up. He's bought us at a steep price. He's brought us near when we were far off, and now he's building us together to do great works, which again, last week he said, which he's already prepared in advance for us to do. And no longer were the Gentiles or are we separated from Christ because we, when we accept him in our lives, can be in Christ no longer are we separated from a chosen people because the New Testament says that we are God's chosen people and even a royal priesthood. No longer do we not have access to the promises of the old covenant, but we do have access to the promises of the new covenant, which includes eternal life with him and God's presence as a down payment in your life today. No longer are we hopeless, but we are hope-filled because God is at work in our everyday lives and our eternity. No longer are we without God because he makes himself available to all of us. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you. I thank